2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're making our way through the book of 2 Corinthians sporadically. Tonight we'll jump back into our study. We'll read verses 1 through 11. But I determined this with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Let me just explain this before we bounce into the next few verses. Once again, as we mentioned the last time we were in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul uh, had to address a lot of issues in this church. He had to address sin. People had to be uh, church disciplined in the congregation. He's confronting a man who had come in, a, a false apostle, undermining the apostleship of Paul. And Paul is dealing with all these things. Beside the, the first letter that we see for Corinthians, there was another letter that's not recorded in Scripture. And he's talking about the grief of a pastor having to address issues and seeing at first they weren't responding well. Now, he'll get back word from Titus that he'd sent over there that the church now uh, was responding according to his wishes. But he's just, he just said, I planned a trip. I didn't make the trip. I haven't followed through yet. God's not permitted it. But apart from that, he said, I love you guys. And the timing wouldn't be right if I arrived. It would just be adding to your grief, my grief. And uh, he's addressing these things in the beginning of the chapter. And now he kind of switches gears a little bit. Look what it says. But if any have caused grief, and they had, he didn't throw in a name here. But Paul often did include names. I beseech Yodius and Syntyche. Can you imagine when they received that letter and read it in the church? Those two troublemakers suddenly got called out by name in eternal scripture. Amen. But not in this case. Name's not mentioned. He said, but if any have caused grave, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things, to whom ye forgive anything. I forgive also, for if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now here's the key. Look what it says verse 11 lest Satan should get an advantage of us if we're not ignorant of his devices. Now, as we look at this text, Paul is referencing the matter of church discipline here in the congregation. And there are a few churches that are still practicing church discipline. Sin is rampant in churches today. Not even hidden sin blatant sin, open sin, from sexual sin, uh, devious conduct uh, in the youth, in the married couples. It's just astounding now what church leadership and pastors overlook. Uh, debt, I believe, congregational debt is so great that they fear losing uh, uh, 
portion of their church that's helping to sustain and pay the bills. So they overlook things and uh, they turn a blind eye, cover their eyes and ignore sin in the congregation. Now, I don't believe every sin needs to be dealt with publicly. Most sin uh, should be dealt with privately. And we understand when it comes to church discipline, uh, very few things fall specifically into that category. Uh, God gives us a pattern how to deal with that. But uh, here's where most commentators or preachers would disagree. Specifically, he's mentioning a case of sin, open, blatant sin in the church that had to be addressed. And they were hesitant to address it. They were overlooking it. And Paul had to rebuke them. So the church followed through Paul's instructions, addressed the sin, confronted it, and the man repented. So there was a period of church discipline. Paul doesn't get into the specifics, and he doesn't even mention the man by name. That's a lot of grace in the way he did that. Now go back with me to 1 Corinthians 5, because we do remember having been through the book and studying, there was a case specifically mentioned, a horrific case of sin in the church. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and he said, such fornication is not so much named among the Gentiles. The one should have his father's wife. There was a man in the church openly living in adultery, committing adultery with, with his own dad's wife, his stepmother. And the church was not even dealing with it. They were talking about their grace in overlooking the matter. And Paul says this, to say this needs to be addressed it needs to be addressed quickly. Verse 2, you're puffed up. He said, in your pride, instead of dealing with the sin, you're saying we're full of grace in overlooking the situation. In verse 5, he says you need to take drastic measures. He says to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, here's what he says, that you're not even supposed to keep company. Verse 11, now I've written unto you, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, covetous, or an idolater, a, a drunkard, an extortioner, with such and one, what's it say? So, church, here's the basic foundational principle. In a church setting, most sins never reach this point. Most people, if they're going to take these kind of drastic measures and live in oak sin, they're simply going to leave church. Occasionally, when I have to address sin, 99% of the time, uh, the person either repents or leaves church. But this man did neither. He, he, he's just staying in church, flaunting his relationship, and Paul says, you need to turn this man over to the destruction of the flesh. And here's, here's what we have to be careful. Each situation is unique, but there have to be lines. When a Christian is living in open and blatant sin, there must be clear lines drawn uh, to... To communicate with them and eat with them and act as if everything were normal is to further their sin instead of encouraging their repentance. Now, one of two things. Paul could have been mentioning this man and uh, there's a possibility I would lean a different direction. Paul says we're going to turn him over to the destruction of the flesh. It, Paul here, go back with me to 2 Corinthians 2. And he says in verse 5, he's, he's kind of brushing this off a little bit by saying, but if any have caused grief, as if he's saying, I've already put away, it's done, uh, I'm not going to allow this to affect me, I'm not going to live offended by this. Yeah. 
I don't think Paul would say that of a sin this disgusting in nature that's known by the church. Uh, Now, there's another issue that Paul addresses here in these chapters, and that's of this uh, false prophet that comes into the church, begins to undermine Paul's apostleship, attack him personally, and he does that so he can preach false doctrine. Paul has to, as he, he comes back through town, this is one of the trips God doesn't give us any real details about, but obviously he has to confront the man. He also has to confront the church. And he says, this, this caused me, this personal letter and this personal confrontation caused me great grief. And he says, it continues to cause me great grief. But he said, what I'm not going to do, I'm not going to live offended. So I, I think he's mentioning one of these two cases, maybe possibly another case that's not mentioned in these books. But there's a chance that he's, he's speaking of someone personally that rose up against him, belittled his apostleship, undermined his church, undermined his authority. And he said, now that you guys have gone through the uh, corporate discipline process, look what it says in verse 5. If any of God's grief, he'd not grieve me. Paul's taking a very humble approach. Whoever it was, it really doesn't matter we're getting to a bigger point here in that sin had to be addressed in the church. This was not a minor sin. This was not an, uh, an unknown sin. This was a sin that everyone was aware of. That's why he didn't have to name the person by name. Everyone was well aware of the situation. And he says, but in part that I may not overcharge you all, sufficient to such a man is this punishment. So punishment was meted out. What's it say? Which was inflicted of many. So the church body did what Paul asked them to do. Now, when we talk about church discipline, we're talking about a biblical, proper, appropriate confrontation. I don't want to take the time to preach on church discipline. Most of you are well aware of it. Uh, What the process, if someone is living in open sin, he has to be confronted. If he refuses to acknowledge his sin at the first confrontation, uh, two or three of the leaders of the church are supposed to get together confront that person in his sin, if he still refuses to admit, acknowledge, confess, repent, make things right, then it has to be brought before the church. There's an order, there's a proper process, but normally that order solves the issue or the person goes out into the world for the destruction of the flesh. Everyone understand? What is the purpose of confronting sin or church discipline? What is the purpose? Restoration. The purpose always for God to bring repentance and to bring restoration to that person. Now, I need you to get these principles because here at the end, we're going to bring it together to a more practical level. Some of you are, uh, you're, you're looking at me strangely because church discipline is so rarely used or rarely needed. Most are unfamiliar with the process. But... We're looking at it at a larger scale. Paul is addressing this church, but we need to take the principle that's being applied here in our personal lives because as we read in verse 11, he's talking about one of Satan's devices, one of Satan's tactics. And when we talk about Satan and his devices, we think rock and roll, drugs, witchcraft, Ouija boards, Michael Jackson, Led Zeppelin. We, we think of these things, but rarely do we think of what Paul is going to address here in the church, which is a lack 
of forgiveness in the congregation. Now, when Paul says, but if any of God's you grieve, he had not grieved me. We see someone here with very tough skin. Now, first thing we need to understand when sin has to be dealt with on any level, in the home, personal relationships, ministry, or on a church level, people are very sensitive. And this is the day and age where people are being taught to be sensitive. We have a society that's encouraging victimization and telling everyone from young to old, you're a victim. They're not now aggressive behavior. There are microaggressions. They're redefining your ability to be offended because you have been oppressed by someone and, and they're stirring these things up based on the color of your skin, your background, uh, something that happened to your ancestors 255 years ago. You know nothing about, but they will bring that to your attention so you remember someone that was a great, 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 that's a really great person, great <laughs> grandfather was actually hurt or abused, so that makes you oppressed as well because his DNA resides in you. But here's what we've done. We've taken all these things to create an environment of sensitivity where people are living uh, actually looking for ways to be offended and looking for ways to be hurt. And pastors, that's why when they get up to preach, they preach in such a general way. Because the Bible's offensive and they know it's offensive. So they just try to, to pad whatever they're preaching with, with all kinds of additional flowers. And that way, if I say it smoothly and kindly, and generically, hopefully no one will get upset. Well, that's just not the case because the Bible's offensive. No matter how you preach it or package it, it's going to be offensive. But here's what Paul said. This was not an accidental microaggression. This was a macroaggression. This was someone in his face uh, trying to undermine his ministry, attack him personally in his apostleship, and he, he brushes it off and says, okay, the church dealt with it. In my opinion, it's over. It's been long forgiven. If any of God's grief, he's not grieved me, but in part. Now, this is important. This is very important. Look at the next phrase. That I may not overcharge. Now, there's no one here that likes an overcharge. Can you imagine Ms. Simpson goes shopping and she's simply going to pick up a bag of rice and go to the counter. She's in a hurry. Nothing else. She thought it said $2.89 right there on the shelf. But when she gets up to the counter and they ring it up, the lady says, That'll be $10.99. And she says, but, but I read the price, and that's not the price. And Light said, it doesn't matter. I just want to overcharge you today. And Miss Simpson said, I don't want it then. I don't want your stinking rice. Not if you're going to overcharge. No one likes to be overcharged. Now, isn't it strange when it comes to the matter of sin and penalty and punishment and forgiveness, we like to overcharge. I'm not going to charge you $289. I decided today I'm going to charge you 
and I, and I don't think you've paid enough. I, I don't think you repent enough. And here's what Paul's saying. Church, you've dealt with this man. You've dealt with this problem. Now, it doesn't matter. Let's, let's just say the two known cases that he might be addressing. The man that was living in adultery with his father's wife, how, how worse can a situation be than that? Or, in, in my opinion, as a pastor... These are two worst situations a pastor could have. Or for a man to come in, act like a spiritual authority, take over the platform, and begin to undermine the pastor and undermine his preaching and undermine his personality and undermine his past and undermine his future, undermine everything that he's done, and then to start preaching false doctrine. Either way, these are extreme cases that had to be addressed. So in my mind, Paul could have said, I think we're going to charge him triple. Whoever it was, the fornicator or the false prophet. But here's what Paul said. You have taken the matter. You've addressed the sin. You establish a punishment. We're done. Move past it. Don't overcharge. Now, church, I don't think we have to deal with this church setting of sin addressed in a church. Here's what we need to do. We need to think about in our own lives when we have to deal with sin. Maybe that's in your home. Maybe that's with your child. Maybe that's with a family member. Maybe that's with a ministry. Maybe that's with a friend. Here's what we like to do. We like to address the sin and tell them there needs to be a repentance. And even when there is repentance, we like to overcharge. For the next week, the treatment is different. For the next month, we, we hang that over the person's head. When it comes to sin, we're gifted at preaching forgiveness and then overcharging. And Paul said, there's a situation here, and it was a horrible situation, but it's been addressed in church what no one can afford to do if we're truly going to help the church and we're truly going to help this person is overcharge them. Now, forgiveness is commanded, biblical forgiveness, as Christ has forgiven us, so the, the simple fact that it's commanded means we ought to forgive. It's going to help the church. How many understand? We, we had years ago a case in Mexico. A young couple got in adultery. They were confronted. It, it was widely known. Obviously, she's growing, and it, it, she had kind of been helping there in the church a little bit. Peripheral help, but help nonetheless. So we had to address it. And here's what we, we didn't want it. I think people are so inappropriate sometimes the way they dealt with sin. We were trying to deal with it properly and, and they wanted to make things right and the church embraced them. But here's what we did. There, there had to be lines. You've got to be moved out of ministry temporarily. There's got to be restoration. But here's what I want to do. Ultimately, I want them restored. We go back to Mexico now. We see them. We see their kids. We hug their neck. We thank God that sin was handled properly. And 15 years later, they're in church, their kids are in church, and the family's doing well because there was a proper biblical confrontation. And then there was instruction to the church, this is dealt with, we don't overcharge. You know what you can do in overcharging? You, you, a look can overcharge. Just, just a little disdain, a little avoidance, uh, uh, a little bit of looking down upon that person or bringing up something in their past. Um, 
Christians, I believe we ought to be the holiest church on the planet. I believe we ought to be the godliest church on the planet. But I also believe we ought to be the most Christ-like in our forgiveness. So when sin is confronted and repentance is accomplished, forgiveness has to be complete in the sense of there can't be a bill next month. You know what? We said you owed $50, but we changed our mind and, you know, we're going to charge you monthly until we're done making you pay. This is done on a lot of levels. Church, you don't want to miss this tonight. Uh, God put this in Scripture because there are some important things here. And we talk about Satan's tactics. This is one so common in homes and marriages and churches where a wife wants to overcharge, a husband wants to overcharge, a parent wants to overcharge, a child wants to overcharge. And while we talk of forgiveness, years later, someone is still trying to charge for a sin that was repented of two years ago. Now, just circle the next word, verse 6. What's it say? Sufficient. Sufficient. At some point, the punishment has to be sufficient. Parents, here's why I'm not for grounding. Grounding can take, I've I've talked to kids before, I'm grounded this month. This month, they're going to be bitter by the end of the month. (laughs) 30 days of punishment? Sufficient. It it was probably sufficient two weeks ago. And we're overcharging, which creates bitterness. And, And here's the problem. When you have someone that's repentant and they're trying to get up, when we overcharge them, they begin to overcharge themselves. Everyone in here knows what it feels like to be overcharged to the point you start to overcharge yourself. You say, God's not going to forgive me. One of the hardest parts of the Christian life is when someone gets saved, God erases. We talked about biblical forgiveness, and and we're talking about the record in heaven is erased. But there's a record on earth. There's a record in your conscience, and you carry that around. And guess what happens? Satan will bring that up, and as you live out the consequence, we, we know people say, well, there's no difference in the size of sins. Yes, there is, because there's a difference in the size of the consequence. There are things that some of you did 25 years ago, you continue to pay in the consequence. So although you want to serve God, you want to live for God, you're limited in your energy. And you say, I've got the energy for today and the responsibilities of today, but I'm still paying for the consequences of yesterday. And I barely have the energy for today, but I've got to, I've got to stir up the energy to still be paying for what I did five years ago. Are you guys understanding tonight? So sin overcharges. We have to be careful that we don't participate in that. It's kind of like our prison system. Someone commits a crime. Prison is the sentence, but everyone there feels like they're part of the punishment. So, so whoever the officers are, they feel like I need to belittle this prisoner and I, I need to treat him as poorly as possible, and I need to inflict as much punishment upon him because I need to be part of his punishment. No, you're not there to be part of his punishment. And as Christian, we need to understand, sin brings its own consequence. Sin causes great loss. Sin in in everything, emotionally, physically, financially, in, in your marriage, in your home, with your children, respect. All these things encompass the consequence of sin. So you don't need to be someone else's consequence. 
in their sin. That's overcharging. And Paul said the consequence was paid. Now, let me ask you this. If it was the false prophet that came in or the man that was committing adultery with his father's wife, even once the church forgave him, is the consequence over? How are they looked at for the rest of their lives? Is that stain ever, to, ever removed in that congregation? No. Is that pain? Is that hurt? Is that memory? Is that emotional scar? That the consequence never truly goes away. So for some member to say, I forgive you, but I just want you to know, I'm, I'm never really going to be a friend. I don't want to do a hamburger with you. I don't want to be around you, you scumbucket. It's, it's just this continual charging, and that's what Paul is trying to stop. He's, he's trying to say, at some point, we've got to let a person get up. At some person, we've got to help them up. At some person, we've got to say they've been charged enough, and sufficient is uh, to such a man the punishment which was inflicted of many. Even in your own home, you punish a child. There's embarrassment in front of the family. As soon as they get done, uh, then the brother is just like, ooh. <laughs> you know, one of them holds it over the other one. A lot of overcharging that takes place when it comes to sin. Now, look what it says in verse 7. So the contrary wise, ye ought rather to forgive him and to do what? Now, go with me to Luke chapter 17. Just a reminder, everyone knows the verse, but we just need to read it. We'll hop right back. Luke 17, look what it says in verse 3. Take heed to yourselves, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, do what? Does God give you an option? He said... If there's repentance, you are commanded to forgive. Now, I know, I don't want to get into theological arguments. Uh, I believe we ought to forgive whether or not there's repentance, but we're talking in the, in the context of what? Restoration here. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, seven times in a day, turning into thee, and saying, I repent, <laughs> thou shalt what? There's no one else in your life that's going to commit the same offense seven times a day. Unless you're married to him. But if that person repent, now the wives would all say, look at the pronoun. It's the man that has to confess and resent. He, he, no she in that verse, amen. All him. But if he says, if that poor man says, I repent, thou shalt do what? Forgive him. Now, now some would say, well, pastor, how do, how do you know if a person is sincere? I'm going to explain how you can know if someone's sincere. You guys ready? You can't. You don't even know when you're sincere. Because you've been confronted before and you're like, I'm so sorry. And then five minutes later, you're like, no, I'm not. I was at the moment, but I'm not now. Oh, pastor, I, I've got discipline in this child. How do I know if they're repentant? You know, you've got people that feel like they're the official sniffers of repentance. They're like a church police dog. You know, like, she's not really repentant. You, you don't know that. 
say, Pastor, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to forgive. If they come and, and, and they repent and they're seeking reconciliation, you, you can't sniff out their heart. You're going to have to take it face value in your home, with your child, in your ministry, at the church, with your neighbor, with your friend, with the spouse, and simply say, there's a Bible command. I take it at face value and I forgive them. And that may mean five minutes later, I'll have to forgive them again. Same offense. Now, here's the bigger issue. That seven times 70, that 490, that endless number, whatever it is, seven times a day, whatever the case is, we know it's not the same sin. We know it's jacked up in your mind. And you forgave them, and 20 minutes later... You're thinking about again. You're getting hurt all over again. And you're all mad again. Now, here's the way we, we determine how sin needs to be punished based on whether that was friend or foe. And here's why the handling of sin always divides a church or divides a family. Because that person is family member close to you. They're being way too harsh. They're being way too direct. They could have been much more lenient. They don't know the whole story. But if you don't know that person, don't like that person, like, I think he could have really cracked down on them. There's this side that is taken, but how do we determine the level of punishment? Based on our friendship with the guilty. And that, that really determines, and instead of exercising justice and forgiveness, we allow emotions to get mixed into the equation, and then, you know, we're overcharging. And Paul said, I can really take this personally. That's why I believe they're addressing the false prophet. Because Paul basically is saying, if there's anyone here that could be offended, it's me. I'm not offended. So let's, let's end the punishment. Let's move forward as a church. Let's stop digging this hole deeper. Why don't we as a church body do what God has commanded us to do? He has been forgiven. Let's exercise godliness and move on. So you forgive him and then do what? Comfort him, lest perhaps son, such a one should be. Now look at, look at the wording here that Paul uses in Scripture. Swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Now, Christian, this is a pitiful visual illustration that, that Paul used. How many of you ever seen an anaconda swallow its prey? That's the monster of sorrow. When you have someone that's committed a sin, confessed the sin, and would like to move on, but is not being allowed to move. This is a child in a home with a mom that is angry and not allowing that child to move on. This is a spouse that's done wrong, and, and maybe it's a horrible wrong, but they've confessed it in their heart and mind to the person over and over and over again, and months pass and years pass, and they're being overcharged. And at some point, they're, they're getting swallowed up with overmuch sorrow because someone just simply won't move past. How many understand guilt of sin? You've done something that you had to live with your guilt. Anybody here? And just the thought of it, because you're truly, you're truly repentant, and it happened 10 years ago, and there's still the thought of it. 
He just causes such extreme sorrow. And you think, you know what sin does? It, it disconnects cables. It turns off the lights. It eliminates all logic. And you look back and say, well, what was I thinking? You weren't thinking. Sin stopped you from thinking. And so what you do when you look back, you say, that was so, so stupid. And how could I have done that? And why wasn't I thinking about the future? And now I get to, not only me, but there are other people in my life that I love that have to pay my consequence because of my sin. And you tend to be swallowed up by overmuch sorrow. And isn't it strange that sometimes the further your distance from the sin of your past, the older you get, the more you're swallowed up by it. You're just more aware of the lives that have been hurt and the people that have been affected. And you're looking back and saying, how much different my life could have been had I not committed that sin? How much easier my life could have been? How much better this marriage could have been or how much better the life of my child would have been or how much better my future would have been had I not committed those sins? That's, that's being swallowed up in over much sorrow. But the problem is this, not just what you're doing to yourself, but then what we do to each other. Now, marriages, I want, I want to help you out. Couples, I want to help you out. We tend to participate in this kind of thing. So instead of a biblical forgiveness, as God has forgiven us, God eliminates all record. It's never mentioned again. He said, I choose to forget. And here's what's such a destructive force in marriage. A sin is committed, no matter what the size or how tragic it is. A sin is committed. And then one says, I'm not just going to charge you, but... When I get upset, I'm going to pull out the bill again. And then when it's convenient for me in an argument, I'm going to charge you again. And it doesn't matter that it's four years ago or eight years ago or 12 years ago. Uh, I just want you to know, I carry around a bill in my pocket. And that way, when it's convenient for me to win this argument, I just pull out a bill of past sin and continue to charge you. It happens in the lives of children too, or parents, children with their parents. Children that were hurt by a parent 12 years ago and they're still mentioning it. Or parents that have been hurt by a child or something was said, you still vividly remember the exact words and you're gonna bring it back up. And that, that person's gonna be swallowed up. They're not a Christian. They're just not living happy. You know why? They're either overcharging themselves or someone else is continually overcharging them and leading them to live a life that is swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Look what it says, verse 8. What's the Bible command? Wherefore I beseech you that you would what? Confirm your love. Parents, this is so important. Christians, this is so important. So once the sin's been committed, it's been confronted, it, there ought to be a reconciliation. From that point on, you've got to say, well, I love him. That's not good enough. There needs to be a confirmation. That means you go above and beyond. So if someone's restored in the church or if a child is restored in a home or if there's restoration in the marriage, you need to go above and beyond in a confirmation. Uh, so if, if Brother Jamie has fallen, he's been restored. I'm, I'm all in the church. Brother Mike, how are you? Good to see you, Miss Debbie. Sure appreciate you. But here's Brother Jamie, and, and he's recently restored. Brother Jamie, good to see you. Love you, brother. How you doing? I want to make sure I go above and beyond 
You have a chance Sunday to catch up with us. We'd love to take you out to eat. Not that I'm ignoring Brother Mike, but I want to make sure right now in the restoration, there is a confirmation where he knows. I'm not holding that over you. Parents, kids have to know this. They've been corrected. If you see the tension there, you've got to go out of your way to say, I want to confirm to him that this, this relationship is restored. I'm not hanging this over his head. I'm not going to mention it again. We're not going to bring it up again. We're not going to relive it again. And I'm going to go above and beyond to confirm my love for him. Otherwise, what Paul say? Satan has gotten the advantage in that marriage. Satan got an advantage in that home. Look what it says, verse 9. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be what? You know what biblical forgiveness is? It's obedience in all things. Foundational principle to all Christianity. Isn't it amazing how we box our obedience, I mean, and, and our forgiveness and say, for you, it comes packaged this way. And for you, based on our likes, our dislikes, the moment, the hurt we're feeling. Here's what Paul said. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes, for the church's sake, forgave I in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. You, you know what we do? We tend to... It's not that you were hurt by that person, but you have a friend that was hurt by that person, so you're going to carry their hurt. And even when they're done with it, you're not done with it. You hurt my husband, you hurt my child, you hurt my wife, and I know my child's fine, but I'm not fine. We're probably never going to be friends again. Don't even bother. Don't even attempt. It was committed against someone close to me, and so we carry that offense, and Paul said, I'm not going to live like that. We don't need to share in each other's mutual hurts. I'm forgiven for the church's sake. You've forgiven them. I'm forgiven them. Story over. End of the matter. Let's move on. Christianity shouldn't forgiveness be mean. We're moving on. Now, here's where Satan is taking advantage. Let's read verse 11. We'll be done. Here's where Satan's taking advantage of so many people, so many times. So many marriages. Look what it says. Lest Satan should what? Get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. How many understand unforgiveness is one of his greatest tools? You say, preacher, that's a blatant, open, obvious sin. That's what Paul was talking about in this chapter. The whole church knew about a sinner and a sin. He didn't even have to mention the name. But now that it's been dealt with, he's telling the church, Satan has a device that can take this church down. And just as that sin could have destroyed this church, now the newest device of Satan, the sin, which is the lack of forgiveness, is going to destroy this place. He said, there's repentance. Now let's, let's just talk about us for two minutes. We'll be finished. Truly, we're looking at this on a corporate level but most likely you'll never have to deal with sin on this kind of level. You're dealing with it in your home, in your marriage, with your children, your work, and your relationships. But we do the exact same thing. We come in, 
we seek repentance. And even when there is repentance, we say, here's the punishment, but I have the right as the offended to overcharge. And Paul said, you've fallen right into Satan's trap and given him the advantage in your marriage or in your home or with your children. You said, I've isolated them from rock and roll. I've isolated them where they can't get involved in witchcraft. I've isolated them from drugs. You've not isolated them from Satan. If you are teaching them the doctrine of unforgiveness and saying, you're forgiven up to this point, but I get to determine how many additional charges and how long. And Aren't you glad God doesn't do that with you? Can you imagine he did that with all your sin? He says, that's forgiven and that's forgotten and I'm not going to bring it up again. Church, if we're going to have a godly body, we're going to have to say when sin is committed, it has to be confronted. But when it is dealt with, it has to be done. There has to be a moving on point where we say we're not reliving it, we're not revisiting it, we're not remembering it. For the honor and glory of God, we're going to get up and love each other and treat each other with kindness and say no one wants to be overcharged.